The book of Proverbs. Let's open up there. You know, I, I will tell you before we, we get on into this that uh, part of the reason that we're going to the Philippines is um, a very definite, loud call on my heart um, that the Lord placed there, not only to go, but also to bring a certain teaching. And so I've been studying Second Timothy, which is what I'll be teaching when we're there, and I, I covet your prayers for that. But there are just times when the Lord says, you need to do this. And the best thing to do in those times is do it. I, I, studying Second Timothy, I have no idea why that book. Uh, and uh, we'll find out. I'm sure we'll find out while we're there why this book, what, what is here, what's contained here that he wants, what message is he, is he sending that he wants to get across to those who are, who are hearing. I asked the same question as I was flying home today about Proverbs 1 through 3. Why this now? Now, I thought I knew a week ago Sunday when we opened up and read the first seven verses, but as I continue to read, and especially in light of what's happening in Japan, of some of the worldwide birth pangs, truly, I believe, um, intensifying birth pangs that we see going on in the world all around us, that seem to be on the increase, on the rise, to the point where um, it's taking down nations. And I thought, why... Proverbs now. I think we're in this book right now for a reason. I have yet to fully discover and understand that. Perhaps we will together. But I would like to pray and ask Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us in these words what you want us to know. That you alone, Lord Jesus, have the power, the ability, and the right to speak by your Spirit into our hearts and to emphasize what you want emphasized at the right time. And to say what you want to say, even if it's not in the notes that I've prepared, that you have a message for us and you always meet us, Lord, right where we are. We, we don't deserve that. We, we shudder to think of your might and power and glory and yet your willingness to come near. But we recognize this as, as gospel truth. And so tonight I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come near and that you would speak the message we need to hear as fellowship gathered here tonight as individual followers of yours. And Father, even if there are those here tonight who are on shaky ground faith-wise, that we would hear what your Spirit is saying to the church tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Proverbs chapter 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, Reshith in the Hebrew, the beginning, the starting line of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so as we talked about when we opened this up to introduce the book, the fear of the Lord is the starting line. It's where our feet get set in the blocks for the race ahead. And we are in a race. Make no mistake about it, the lives we live, we are running in a race. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way, he writes, that you may win. Are you in it to win it? 
Are you in this race to win this race? To run strong. We begin the race with the fear of the Lord. That is the best starting place. To recognize that He is God and you are not. To face Him with holy awe, even to shudder in that holy awe. To have a real and true fear, but as we experience the love of this fearsome God, that holy awe begins to shift into more of a humble adoration. That a God who is so, so awesome, so fearsome, loves us so much. It draws out the deepest kind of love from within us. And that then begins to shift into heartfelt assurance as we run this race. Assured that we're going to win. Assured we're going to cross that line, break the tape, and we'll say like Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Now the beauty of the Mishlei, the Proverbs, is that as we talked about, it is a manual for this race. It's a manual for the course set out before us. It shows us how to run wisely. He continues in verse 8, he says, Hear my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, They are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. For Solomon, this book is very personal. You will see throughout the book, he's writing to his son. 24 times he says, son, pay attention. Son, listen up. My son, if you will listen to these words of mine. Two times he says, sons in the plural. And it's believed that he's not just writing this for the vast uh, people of Israel or people in the world who might pick up his book at a local Amazon.com. What Solomon's doing here is writing, putting together a book of wisdom for his boys, for his sons. They're in the palace. They're in Jerusalem. His sons, sons, pay attention to this. These words will guard you. And specifically one son, probably his firstborn, probably Rehoboam, who would have done well to pay more attention to his dad than he did. At the end of the book, the prophet Agur agrees with what Solomon says about a child paying attention to his father, to his mother. Agur says in Proverbs 30, verse 17, The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Now those are strong words. But he's saying, look, don't scorn the teaching of your parents, mom and dad. Now this goes from the youngest to us to the oldest among us. This is God's design. The starting line begins with the fear of the Lord. But wisdom also says, hear your parents. Fear the Lord, hear your parents. We barely even scratch the surface of Proverbs, and these two stand tall. Fear the Lord, hear your parents. Well, as I said, my brother and I just got back from spending last week in California. My dad just turned 75, my mom just turned 70. And so we had a great time with them. And and here I am, 46 years old. I left father and mother to cling to my wife 25 years ago, but I'm still listening. And I'm recognizing, and even through this last week, recognizing the wisdom that my parents still have. The things I can still learn from them. I need that wisdom. Fear of the Lord and to hear your parents. And you might say... (laughs) Well, my parents are idiots. 
Well, then you've been placed in the right family. They're perfect for you. Seriously speaking, some might say, what if my parents are a mess? You know, how can you say, how can God's word say, children, obey your parents, listen to your parents, sons, listen to your father's instruction, don't forsake your mother's teaching. How can God say that, considering the kind of family that I grew up in, some might say. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3. The Lord spoke these words. He said, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. So here's the reason. Inherent in what God just said in the book of Leviticus, here's why every single one of us need to honor our parents regardless of how they were or are as parents. We honor our parents for the sake of the Lord our God. Not even for the sake of our parents. In fact, there's an interesting wordplay in Leviticus 19.3. He says, you shall reverence mother and father. The word reverence is yare. Why do I yare mom and dad? Because Yahweh is my God. I yare my parents for the sake of Yahweh, my God. You might say, well, yeah, but how can I reverence a parent who didn't have a clue? Listen, your Heavenly Father does have a clue and knows exactly what He's doing. In fact, I'll put a finer point on this. It was no accident that you ended up in the family you ended up in. You think one slipped by the Lord? You think He didn't know? Now, I'm not saying that God would justify or be pleased with all the, the behavior of parents across time. Many parents have done horrific things that God did not want them to do. But there is a reason you were placed in the family unit you were placed in, no matter how messy that unit may have been. And the key to discovering why you were placed where you were placed is the Lord. It's taking it to Him. It's asking Him, what did you have me here for? And we can all look around, and and man, don't get into the world of comparison because it will just mess you up. But we can look around and say, but that person's family, but, but his family, her family, his parents were so good, mine were such a mess. Listen, I haven't met a non-dysfunctional family yet. We're all messed up. Some worse than others, but there is something God is doing. And that goes for every child connected to every parent. And by the way, it goes for all six of my children. Three of my kids are adopted. God put them in my family. I am dad to Anna Marie, Naomi, and David, and they had no say in it. Of course, neither did Corey, Hannah, and Hayden. We're a family on purpose, and God is the one behind this, and so our question just needs to be, Lord, why and what are you doing? What do you have for me here? What do you want me to do with this? Because in your perfect wisdom, you put me in this particular family. Now, if the starting line of knowledge is to fear the Lord... And the first turn in the race, if we look at it as racing this track called life, the first turn is to hear your parents. Well, the backstretch in the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs is number three, to steer clear of the sinner. Fear the Lord, hear your parents, steer clear of the sinner. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We'll fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. 
My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Now you're going to see this throughout the book of Proverbs. Very clearly, two paths. Not a multiplicity of paths. Not many ways all emptying out into the same ocean. Two paths. One that is a path of wisdom, and the other one that is a path of foolishness and sin. Two paths very clearly, and he draws these out that we might see them. And the first path he's pointing out here is is the path of the sinner. Keep your feet from their path. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. Now, it's easy to read these first verses and cast it off as something for another time in another place. I mean, really. How many of you have been enticed to lie in wait for the purpose of shedding blood? How does this really apply to us here? Gang, I think this is unequivocally appropriate for right now and even for us right here in this fellowship. The whole idea behind this, steer clear of the sinner. Let me put it this way. Few of us have probably heard the name Myron Kruger. Anyone heard of Myron Kruger before? Okay, Myron Kruger, back in 1968, was the first person to coin the phrase artificial reality. He was the first. He was doing computer simulation research, and he came up with this phrase, artificial reality, to make the artificial real. 30 years prior to this, in 1938, another guy spoke about artificial reality, a French playwright by the name of Antonin Artaud, and he described theater as, check it out, La Realité Virtuelle. Virtual reality. You know, we think it's something that just happened in this day and age. No, it was talked about back in 38. Antoine Artaud, or Antonin Artaud, he, he thought that the stage was virtual reality. And talked about that. That you'd go see a stage play and you would watch a murder happen. And even though it was a, a plastic knife and it was fake blood, still you're watching... Still you're engaged, still you are vicariously involved in the experience, virtual reality. But go back 2,000 years to a seaside prophet in a one-time obscure region known as the Galilee. And another man spoke of virtual reality. Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. He said, you've heard it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, whatever is virtual in the mind gang is reality in the spirit. Now, understanding that, when we go back and we begin to read things like, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive. Let's do all these things. And we'll find precious wealth from it. Their feet, they run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. When we read this, suddenly it makes a completely different point, especially in the society in which we live. You might not gather with sinners to lie and wait on the side of the road to beat someone up, kill them, and take their money. But you might sit down and enjoy a movie where that very thing happens and you're part of the scenario. You might lie and wait playing a video game. And the same thing is going on. Virtual reality. 
whatever is virtual in the mind is reality in the spirit. Verse 17, he says, indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. He's saying even a bird brain knows when a trap is being set. But sin is much smarter than that. The enemy is much smarter than to put a trap right in front of you and go, oh, be careful, I'm tempting you now. He lies in wait. He sets a trap that you don't see coming, that I don't see coming. Sin doesn't equal stupid. Sinners lie in wait. And usually, by the time we're sinning, we know precisely what we're doing. We're completely aware of it. And he goes on in verse 18 and says, But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Here's what I'm saying with this virtual reality stuff. Insensitivity to human life on any level, actual or virtual, begins to suck the life out of your soul and spirit. Oh, Rick, you're pushing too hard on this. I mean, come on. Games people play, movies people watch, television shows, it's not that big a deal. You know, I've talked about this many times, and I've gotten on to my sons to be careful with the types of games they play. The vicarious violence of video gaming, they've heard me say around the house many times. And, you know, my generation enjoys the very same thing. We may not be pushing buttons, But on the silver screen or the LCD screen or the plasma screen, we're enjoying the same kind of vicarious violence. And we say, it's up there and I'm back here, so it's okay. Gang, our virtual reality world is doing damage. And I can tell you as a pastor, I see it happening. I see it in people's lives. I see how it undermines faith. You know, when I... When I see Christians, and please don't hear this as a judgmental statement on on you or anybody else, because I'm not sitting in judgment, but the reality is when I see Christians walking into rated R movies that I know are bloodbaths, the first thought that comes to my mind is they are giving up part of their spirit to go see this movie. You know, when I I hear games that are in certain households that are just absolutely uh, carnivorous, I think, Mom, Dad, why? Why are you... I know, the kids will get mad if you take them away. Take them away. I would rather have a teenager ranting and and railing on me as a dad than having his spirit wiped out. You're taking this too seriously. Really? Well, let me just read you uh, a little verse here. Paul speaking about the end times, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What that means is we get to the point where our conscience doesn't work anymore. When we go down the path of the sinner. Now again, you might read this and say, I'm not going to lie and wait for blood. I'm not going to ambush the innocent without cause. I don't do that kind of thing. Maybe not physically in actual reality, but in virtual reality, are you? Do you engage in it? Do you find pleasure in it? Let me just be the first to admit, I take pleasure in watching the enemy in a movie blown to bits. Yes! They got him! He's gone! I hate those movies where he gets off scot-free. It's a wonderful life. Nobody gets Potter. Potter should go down but he doesn't see this is the this is the carnal sin nature talking 
that takes pleasure in this kind of thing, lying in wait for blood. Virtual reality, Jesus said, be careful, watch your heart, keep an eye on these things. Now I do want to throw out a caution to you, the Mishlei does not get easier as we go on. Proverbs is not going to be an easy book to read because you cannot skirt by the issues. It's going to make you uncomfortable. It's already made me uncomfortable because here the word demands tough choices. It demands that you take a very black and white approach to say, I'm either going to walk the way of wisdom or I'm going to walk the way of sin. It's one or the other. Wisdom or foolishness. Make the choice. Verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Wisdom. Now, note this. Solomon moves briefly here in these two verses from a father's insight to a mother's heart. Suddenly, wisdom is a she. Wisdom's a she? You're going to see this throughout the book. Wisdom is personified, wisdom as a woman. And Solomon's doing this on purpose. This has confused some people. Now, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise, we're going to look at this more closely in a few weeks. We're going to look at the contrast of, of wisdom as a woman versus the other woman that's talked about in the book of Proverbs. Two women in this book. Very interesting. It's as though Solomon, to drive home his message to his sons, he personifies both wisdom and temptation or adultery. You're going to see woman, woman as, wisdom as a woman and adultery as a woman. One is sensitive. One is seductive. One is tender. One is treacherous. One calls a person along a path of wisdom, the other one down a path of temptation. And Solomon is going to use this personification, and it is a word picture. Wisdom is not actually a woman. Sorry, ladies. Women are no wiser than men. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Any more than women are more adulterous than men. But Solomon uses this personification to get a message home. For now, just understand that the voice of wisdom here, beginning in verse 20, is the mothering nature, listen, the mothering nature of God. The mothering nature of God. Compassionate, nurturing, caregiving, the Spirit. Verse 22, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Note that. Wisdom cries out, I want to fill you with my spirit. This is wisdom speaking in Solomon's personification. I want to fill you with my spirit. Now you might say, okay, wait a minute. (laughs) Is the Holy Spirit feminine? Well, let's be very clear. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout Scripture are always designated as He. I don't know why. I'm not interested in getting into a big debate about God being a chauvinist. All I know is when I read Scripture, as it was originally written, not as people have tried to change it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always described as He. But that doesn't mean there aren't feminine qualities in the Godhead. And you should expect that because man and woman were both made in His image. Okay, So there are more feminine characteristics as far as tenderness and compassion and and that nurturing quality of of a mother. Those feminine characteristics, ladies, they came from God, the Father. 
just as the masculine characteristics that we, we typically think of, you know, in, in terms of strength and, and of course, intelligence. And No, I'm kidding. Um, just as there are masculine characteristics that we draw from God, and quickly, I've said this before, both men and women, if you want to look at the perfect example of how to live your life in Scripture, it's Jesus. Not just for men, for women as well. Ladies, pattern your life not after Mary or Sarah or one of the other, you know, Esther. Pattern your life after Jesus Christ because in Him is the perfect picture of human life. So male and female, it makes no difference. Jesus shows us how to live. But notice this, in the Godhead, Father is tender. Well, that's a feminine characteristic. The Son, we see as protective as a mother hen. He said, Jerusalem, how long I have wished to gather you under my wings the way a, a hen does her chicks. Well, that's a rather feminine characteristic, Jesus. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit is described as comforter. Tragically, in my house, when my kids need comfort, I'm not the first person they call. You know? One of my kids sprains an ankle, I say, walk it off. That's just me. Isaiah 49.15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you, says the Lord. I will remember you better than a mother will remember you. And I was wondering if she'd say it, and she did. I got out of the car and was getting ready to, to head into the airport earlier today. And my mother said her favorite little quote, Don't remember, don't forget, Rick. When all the world forgets, there is a mother waiting still. Oh. <laughs> yeah, see, all the ladies, oh, that's, that's so sweet. And the guys are like, <laughs> Let me just tell you that when a mother forgets, there is a father waiting still. Your heavenly father, even when a mom would forget, never forgets. Such is his compassion. So, so don't be confused by this female personification of wisdom here. It's to make a point. God is strong and commanding like a father, and he's tender and nurturing like a mother. But moms can issue strong warnings. Wisdom continues in verse 24. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. And then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Wayward. Wayward simpletons. It says the waywardness of the naive. The naive, again, is a simple-minded person. And the word there, wayward simpletons, the word wayward is mashubah. And you know what it really means? Backsliding. Backsliding. The backsliding of the simple-minded will kill them. You're either moving forward with the Lord. You're either growing in your faith or you're dying in your simplicity. Okay, it's the backsliding of the simpleton. And, he says, the complacency of fools will destroy them. The word complacent there is shalva in the Hebrew, and it means literally, taking it easy. 
The ease of the fools. What, boy, that is so cultural for us. Chill out. You know, kick back. Relax. Play it cool. And this is the attitude. The fool is the one with that casual, no biggie attitude. The devil may care attitude. Well, guess what? The devil does care. And he's looking to take you down. He lies in wait. He spreads the net. By contrast, you've got this backsliding simpleton. You've got the complacent, taking it easy fool. By contrast, verse 33, He who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Now this is a different kind of ease. This isn't the ease of complacency, the kicking back attitude. It's not shalva, but in the Hebrew it's the word sha'an, and sha'an means, and I love this, it means to rest securely. Resting securely. This is not taking it easy with a corona on the beach. This is finding sweet rest and comfort and peace in the Lord. You walk the way of wisdom. And hey, if you're standing at the crossroads and you're looking, here's the way of wisdom to the right, and here's the way of the fool to the left, and the way of the fool looks so easy and so kicked back and so relaxed, and the way of wisdom looks kind of tough. What the Word would tell you, what the Lord would say to you tonight, is you go down the way of wisdom, and it may not be a kickback journey for you, but what you will have is security. You will be at ease in your spirit. You will rest securely. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. But I remember my dad coaching me basketball as a kid. And before the game, he would often say to our whole team, he'd say, you got to want the ball. Most important thing, when you go out there on the court, you've got to want the ball. The team that wants the ball the most is going to win the game. You've got to want the ball. That's why the Lakers won two straight games over the last week. Because they wanted the ball. I enjoyed that. My father and my brother and I, back watching the Lakers together, that was good. And they won. They wanted it. They wanted it more than the other team. And that's a principle that applies in life too. Same thing here. Are you in it to win it? Do you want the ball? I'm talking about your spiritual life. You know, do you want the wisdom of the Lord? Are you hungry after the knowledge of God? Do you desire to walk in His ways? Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and dig in for His treasure? And we said a hundred thousand times probably in here that it is not works that save us, it's grace. But, that being understood, do you want to work for it? Those who work for it, remember what we said a week and a half ago, whatever you mine, whatever I mine becomes mine. You know, if I'm going to dig in for it, I'm going to ingest it, I'm going to take it, I'm going to feel it and know it, it's going to become mine. I like what what John Corson says about this. He says, you know, if the scriptures seem a little dry, add some sweat to them. Put a little work into them. Study, Paul says, to show yourself approved. Dig in. Seek for it. If you do that, the Lord says, you're going to get a great result. Notice, by the way, that the fear of the Lord back in, what was it, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says. But here, he says in the last, last verse I read there, 
You will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God if you're seeking after it. The fear of the Lord began with knowledge, but now if you work for wisdom, you're going to discern the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that the fear of the Lord is understood by those who search Him out. I I have no problem with the fear of the Lord. Several years ago I did. You know, 30, 40 years ago when I was a kid, the idea of the fear of the Lord, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Why is that? I don't want to fear God. I didn't like the thought. But as I grew to understand, I have discernment about the fear of the Lord. Many of you do as well. You discern that that is a good thing. It's what I want. It's what I desire. But it's understood, gang, by those who search Him out. Verse 6 going on, the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Oh, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Wait a minute, let me just point something out. Get this. Solomon does personify wisdom as a woman, but here he clarifies. Where does wisdom come from? Verse 6. Where does wisdom come from? The Lord. Very clearly. Sorry. There's something about the wisdom coming from the Lord. He is the source. He is where wisdom comes from. It's drawn off of Him. And you need to understand, and Solomon's making it clear here, when he talks about wisdom as a woman, this is a personification. It's a picture. But actual wisdom... And I'm pointing this out because there are those who have thought of wisdom as a being in and of itself. It's not. There are those who have even taught wisdom as almost like a fourth personality there in the Godhead. No, no. Wisdom comes from the heart of, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wisdom is in Christ. Colossians 2.3 In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's critical to understand that as we continue. He stores up sound wisdom, verse 7, for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. Now note this, back in verse 8, the word preserves. He preserves the way of his godly ones is the same word used in verse 11 where he says discretion will guard you. The word for preserves and the word for guard, same word. Same word, shamar in the Hebrew. It means to keep. And so he keeps the way of his godly ones. He preserves the way. He keeps their way and discretion will keep you. These are important truths here. What it's saying here, he guards the way of his godly ones, indicates God goes first. He has to. If he's going to guard you, he's got to go before you, right? I'm reminded of Joshua meeting the captain of the Lord's host. You remember that? Joshua's out by Jericho, and he's walking out there around the city, and he's taking a look, and he sees the massive walls and all this, and suddenly he he sees a man out there. And there's something about this man that's that's powerful and intriguing to Joshua, and he approaches him and he says, Are are you for, for us, or are you for the enemy? And the man says, No. I'm for the Lord. I'm the captain of the Lord's host. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And I believe it's Jesus right there. Jesus meeting up with Joshua. Jesus, captain of the Lord's host. Jesus who says, I will go before you. I will be your shield and your guard. 
Well, the problem is, if we get out ahead of Jesus, we lose our shield. If we start running ahead to do it our way, boy, Jericho, the people of Israel, with, with the captain of the Lord's host as their shield, the walls fell down and they walked in and took the city without having to fire a single shot. The very next battle is the battle of Ai. And they go without the Lord and they get routed. They learned very quickly that the Lord is the one who leads. I think of the old hymn, He leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. Oh, words with heavenly comfort fraught, where'er I go, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Verse 12. To deliver you from the way of evil. From the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. Whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. I found that fascinating. Verse 13. Listen to it again. From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Wait a minute. Can you do that? Can you... Leave the path of righteousness? I thought it was once saved, always saved. But here it sounds like Solomon saying people can be on the righteous path and then be off the righteous path. And that's absolutely true. In fact, if you want some New Testament example of this, back in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul is writing and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and Demas. Demas, who was on the team. Part of the guys on the mission. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes this, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Example of a man who was on the upright path, but deserts to walk the way of the world. John wrote in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. There are those who are walking alongside, part of the the fellowship John is describing, who have now left. Those who at least seemed to walk on the way of the upright. Now I'm not going to debate the once saved, always saved versus free will. But my point is this. One of the tragic but true realities of the kingdom is that there are those who are among us who are not of us. Which could make you rather paranoid if you weren't knowing that God was in control of all things. There are those who are among us who are not of us. What exactly does that mean? Just that there are, as Jesus called them, tares among the wheat. Let me just tell you, my heart as a pastor is that there would not be a single person who is a part of the Bridge Fellowship who is not a part of the church. Who is among us and of us. Not of us, of the Lord. But who's part of this and headed home and loving Jesus. I pray and I hope, Lord, that that is everybody who's part of this fellowship. But I know, I know in reality because in every church across the face of the world there are people sitting there who are not a part of what's going on. There are those sitting there who are among us. They show up, but they're not really of us. And again, this is not about us. But the question is, are you in love with Jesus Christ? Are you following after Him? Because if you're not, then really there are better things you could be doing on a Wednesday night than sitting here. There are those who will leave the paths of uprightness. Wisdom recognizes this is true. Never follow a man, by the way, 
unless you see Christ out ahead of him. You see Christ out ahead, and that's probably someone you can follow because you see them following Christ. But don't follow a man because he's charismatic or because he seems to have good ideas. I'm going to point out to you Rob Bell. Some of you know who Rob Bell is, and some of you probably think, hey, there's some cool stuff that he's put out, some videos and some books and things. Rob Bell has a a new book that just came out called Love Wins. Rob Bell is one of the premier guys in the emerging church. And in his book, Love Wins, he denies all matter of just biblical truth. And it's really stirring things up. He says hell's not eternal. You know? Well, boy, that's weird because Jesus said it was. But, you know, who am I to, you know, Rob versus Jesus? And so there are those out there who are saying, hey, hey, here's the way to go. And it sounds good. It sounds good. I'll tell you what, I would love for there not to be a hell. Wouldn't that be nice? Just to walk around the world going, hey, do whatever you want, we're all going to heaven. Praise God. Rock and roll, you know. But there's biblical truth. And if we're not willing to acknowledge biblical truth, if we're if we're selling lies, people will be lost for for it. Never follow a man unless you see Christ out ahead of him. And by the way, never follow a strange woman, just ever. Verse 16. <laughs> Verse 16, these words of wisdom are to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead. And none who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. This is incredibly powerful stuff. Here's the contrast to wisdom as a woman. The alternate feminine personification in the book of Proverbs is the seductive adulteress. And it's not just adultery that we're talking about. It's not just the idea of a woman who lures a man into a bedchamber somewhere for inappropriate things. Solomon is warning his sons. And the reality is the adulteress can take many forms of seduction in this life. The adulteress is anything that is luring you away from the way of wisdom, away from the path that God is calling us to. It doesn't have to be a woman. It can be money. It can be success, arrogance, drugs and alcohol, pleasures. It can be any manner of things, but if the lure is there, that's the adulteress. Solomon's going to point this out many times as we go along the way. Three things you might want to know quickly about the adulterated way. Okay, as personified in the adulteress, number one, the adulteress lures with flattery, verse 16. The adulteress who flatters with her words. You know, guys especially, if there's one thing that trips us up, it's the flattery of a beautiful woman. That is dangerous for guys. Because we're kind of like my dog Reggie. We are. If you say, oh, Reggie's a good boy, the tail starts wagging and we're just like... You know, the adulteress who flatters the man and and draws him away. And the man's going, you know, my wife never says things like that. My wife doesn't say these sweet words like this this beautiful, wonderful Christian sister is saying. Yeah, that's because your wife knows you. (laughs) The adulteress doesn't. There's a realness in, in a marriage, gang. There's a realness there. Yes, your wife does know you. And flattery is just the wrong approach. The flattery, flattery is the lure of the adulteress. It comes with an agenda. And by the way, take care with flattery. I, I do. 
Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Boy, if someone's pouring on the flattery, trying to get you to go a certain way that's divisive, but boy, they sure make you feel good as they're speaking these words. Be careful. Flattery is not of the Lord. Flattery doesn't work that. You know, the Lord is into encouragement and exhortation. That's very different than flattery. Very different thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. It's not about flattery. You know, it's not our job to go around and flatter Christians. Encourage each other, yes. Bear up, strengthen, yes. But not flatter with empty words. That's the the lure of the adulteress. But note this, verse 17 also goes on and says that she leaves the companion of her youth. Gang, the adulteress lures with flattery. Number two, the adulteress leaves her father. She leaves her father. The adulteress leaves the companion of her youth. The companion of a girl's youth is supposed to be dad. It's her father. And there's something very real in this. In fact, with the adulteress, the father-daughter relationship is often broken. And when it's broken, the outcome can be devastating. A poor relationship with dad... Gang is one of the strongest precursors to sexual promiscuity among teenage girls. I was in youth ministry for 15 years. I saw it over and over and over. The most promiscuous girls in the youth group always had a broken relationship with dad. Now that doesn't mean if you have a broken relationship with dad, you're automatically going to be promiscuous. But I saw this and it almost became a rule. I could see it coming. But let me say this, ladies especially. If you have a broken relationship with the companion of your youth, with your dad, one that you can't seem to fix, please remember what your Heavenly Father said. Your Heavenly Father. 2 Corinthians 6.18 I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's awesome. It's great because so often God refers to the sons, but He very specifically in this verse says, and daughters. I'll be your father. If you have a messed up relationship with your dad, ladies especially, the Lord says, let me be your father. Let's have a restored relationship between you and me. I will be the companion of your youth. I will be the companion of your life. But again, this is more than just a daughter leaving a father. This is more than an adulteress as simply a woman. This is that picture of the the, the voice that lures. And I am personally leery of any voice that has left the Father, that undermines the Father's holiness, the Father's pathway to life. Any voice that leads away from the Father. And for we see here in verse 18, or the end of verse 17, she also forgets the covenant of her God. The adulteress lures with flattery, leaves her father, and finally, number three, leads to forgetfulness. The adulteress leads to forgetfulness. And it seems to me that more and more people are forgetting the 
fundamental sacrifice that God made to save us from our sin. One of the problems with Rob Bell's book is that it denies the sacrifice of Jesus. Because if we deny there's a hell, if we deny there's a punishment, if we deny that we are sin sick and in need of a Savior, we deny the cross. And there was no need for it. It's a big waste of time for Jesus to be killed if there wasn't a reason for Him to die. If there wasn't a need for us to be delivered from our sin and from the coming of of hell. But Jesus did die for us. And we don't undermine that. And we don't wander away from it. And we don't forget. This is why, by the way, at the bridge, we take communion at least every Sunday. Because we don't forget the cross of Christ. Because we don't forget what He's done. That we are saved into a new covenant with God by the blood of Jesus. And so, verse 20, you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. And the word remain there is literally perpetually remain. You'll always be there. Protected, safe, secure in the land. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Now, I'm not saying and I don't believe that Japan was a divine judgment that the earthquake and the resulting tsunami was God going, I'm just going to show those Japanese. No, because there are believers in Japan just like in America. And there are those who love the Father and love Jesus just like here. And so I'm not saying that I, I think that that's the thing going on. However, what we do see is that you can very quickly be uprooted from a place that you find very secure. I watched a video just this afternoon, six-minute-long video of the tsunami coming in these streets. Some of you may have seen it on YouTube. It is horrifying. Because first, it's just water running up the street, and the guy's got the video camera on it. People are running, trying to drive away in cars. And next thing you know, as cars are floating up the street, next thing you see a big boat coming right up the middle of the street, and then houses, and you've seen the pictures, coming off of their foundations, smashing in buildings, being washed away by this massive wall of water. It is terrifying. But I'll tell you what, one lesson to take from that, it takes that long to be uprooted from what we think is secure. You want to live securely in the land? You want to have security? There's only one place to have the absolute and eternal security, and that is with the Father. Only the upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. And the only way to be blameless is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's security there. And there's strength there. Chapter 3. Verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Doesn't mean that a believer isn't going to die young, but it does mean that by following the words of wisdom and by listening to the voice of Jesus in your life, it does bring literally health to you. We'll see more of this in just a minute. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Note that. Kindness and truth. Bind them around your necks. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Kindness and truth. Kindness and truth. Yes, it's the word grace. Chesed and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. It just keeps coming at us again and again. Grace and truth. We're realized, John said, through Jesus Christ. John 1.17. 
It didn't end with the Psalms. We saw grace and truth coupled throughout the Psalms. And here we have it again. That you take grace and truth. You take the person of Jesus Christ who reveals grace and truth to us and you bind Him around your neck and you write Him on the tablet of your heart and you follow after Jesus. I know I've pointed this out many times. I think every time I see grace and truth in Scripture, I'm going to need to point it out to you. Because it's Jesus here that we're talking about. This is It's the message of our lives, gang. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, who is both grace and truth to us, is the message of our lives. Well, great, Rick. What does that mean practically? It's a nice spiritual thing. What exactly does it mean? It means that if we live like Jesus, with grace and truth, it makes all the difference. Jesus unmerited grace to everyone around Him. That's the way He treated people. He always had grace for people, but it was married with uncompromising truth. And that's the problem that I see in the world today. Sometimes we see in the the harsh religious legalistic world, we see people clinging to truth. It's truth. There's the truth of the world and the truth of the Lord and the rest of you going to hell in a handbasket. That's the way it is. You know, truth. And then on the other side, it's, it's, it's grace. It's all grace. And everything's fine. And everybody's going to be saved. And there's no problem. And Jesus was grace and truth. Grace, I will save you. All you need to do is call my name. But truth, you need me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. One of the most memorized and quoted verses in all of Scripture and well so. In fact, would you repeat it with me starting in verse 5? Let's read it together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. You know that verse... Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 is actually inscribed right, right under the bottom lip of the In-N-Out chocolate shake cups. I know that because I had In-N-Out for dinner last night. Love In-N-Out. Yeah, it's, it's inscribed on all the cups because the founders of In-N-Out were believers, are believers, and on their, I think on their Coke cups it says John 3.16 right underneath the, the edge of it. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. I think it's a great verse to have there. Practically what this means, gang, is that we take him at his word. We just take God at His word and it doesn't matter if we comprehend or understand what He's saying. And this is a huge issue for followers of Jesus. Listen, people say, I know the Bible says this, but... Okay, you're not taking Him at His word. Well, I've read that myself. However, there, there are no buts, there are no howevers. It is either God's word or it is not God's word. Oh, Rick, you're just... So literal. Thank you. Mark Twain once said, you may have heard this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) Well said. And that's the issue. We still have this little rebellious spirit in us looking for ways around things. Take God at His word. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your paths straight. Trust Him for what He says. Believe Him for it. You may not understand when you read it. You may not understand when you hear it. It might not compute in your particular life. But if you will take Him at His word and do it His way and stay on the path of wisdom, guess what? You will look back years later and say, Wow, He was right. Oh, 
He, he knew what he was talking about. Duh! God knows. He really does. He knows what he's doing. In fact, let me give you some biblical advice. Don't do what you think, no matter how well informed you may be. Do what he says. Just do what he says, and he will make your path straight. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now I love this. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Biblical, biological health. Solomon is saying something that I absolutely believe to be true, that fearing the Lord and turning from evil is God's first prescription for ulcers and stress-related irritable bowel syndrome. Where do you get that? It will be healing to your body. That phrase, you just got to note this, it will be health, literally, to your navel. The word body is shore in the Hebrew, and it means navel. It will be health to your stomach. What's he saying? He's saying if you'll just trust the Lord, if you'll just walk walk in His ways, you're going to avoid all those stress-related stomach aches. You're going to avoid ulcers. Isn't it? Maybe it's not with everyone, but for me, the first place that starts to get a little troublesome is my stomach when I'm stressed out. That's the first place I feel it. When I'm starting to worry, when I'm starting to freak out, in fact, you know, I wasn't going to share this, but I, I will. I, I brought it along just in case I decided to. But I want you to hear, I ran across this. I was moving files from one computer to the next, and, and I ran across this, and I just started laughing. Back in 2008, we got hit with that cease and desist notice back there. I want you to hear what your pastor did. Upon seeing that, I went home and I sat down behind my computer and I started to work. And my stomach's churning, you know, and I'm worried, you know, they're going to kick us out and where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And so I wrote the Bridge Christian Fellowship Transition Plan. Immediate questions. How do we maintain contact communication with the fellowship? Maybe email info page on the website. Uh, what do we do with the modular units out here? Keep them for future use, use or should we return them for loss but immediate cash in the bank? How will we transport equipment for services? We'll need to purchase a good watertight converter. This, I mean, that afternoon I'm going. We need a good watertight covered trailer for sound equipment delivery and storage for the week. Can we ask the county if we can use the barn for midweek Bible study or youth group or rehearsals or men's meetings or women's meetings or something? Can we use the barn for our upcoming Christmas Eve services? I'm just tapping away, you know? And I can see the Lord. Not at that moment. But when I look back, I see the Lord standing behind me going... Whenever you're ready, Rick. I continue writing. Transition issues, responsibilities. We need a location in North, maybe North Whidbey Middle School in Oak Harbor if available. Or maybe a place in Anacortes. One service on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Or, or, or maybe one in each town. Uh, maybe we can have an early teaching service for teachers. And, but then what do we do with kids? And I'm writing all this out. It's just hysterical. <laughs> Coordination of, trans, of transition. That's uh, going to be my responsibility. Fellowship, communication, transition, oversight. Transition prayer team. That was going to be Les and Steve. Facility rental and contracts. That was going to be Jim and Jeff. Finances and giving. Well, that will be Jeff's to take care of. Worship transition. I'll dump that on Tom and John Adelot and Jim Hutchinson. They can take care of that. Information kiosks for women, children, small group. I'm thinking all this stuff. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And as I'm, as I'm typing this away, I get down and there's a point on the page where it, where it just stops. And that was the moment where I sat back, I kid you not, in my office, and I just went, what am I worried about? Why am I so stressed out? 
This is not my problem. This is God's problem. They put a cease and desist on His barn. Let Him deal with it. And I had a great afternoon after that. It takes a little time sometimes to sink in to the center of the sponge. Gang, I know immediately when I'm trying to go my own way because I feel it right here. God has blessed me with a very sensitive stomach. And so when I get uptight, that's where it hits. First thing. And that's why maybe I love this verse so much. It will be healing to your navel. Praise the Lord. And refreshment to your bones. There is a physiological uh, response, a physiological result to walking in the way of wisdom. It actually impacts your body, your life. It's a great prescription for health. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 22 will tell us they are life to those who find them. These words are, and health to the body. So here's a bit of good news for you. If you stick with this whole study through Proverbs, all 31 chapters, you're going to be more healthy than you are right now. Now listen. Trusting the Lord, as we said before, doesn't always make sense to the human mind. He says go, and we say, uh. And he says it's right here, and we go, yeah, but. It doesn't always make sense. And so Solomon turns around and he gives one of the most obvious and uncomfortable examples of having to trust in the Lord when it does not compute for us. Verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Really? Well, Solomon, you haven't seen my budget. You haven't looked at my ledgers. You haven't checked out my quicken. (laughs) The Lord said through the prophet Malachi, Chapter 3, verse 10, bring the whole tithe. That's 10%. Make no mistake about it. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Malachi is not the only one who advanced this principle. But listen, Solomon presents it here as the first principle of faith building. That's the issue with giving, gang. It is a faith issue. I know I've said this before, and I will say it again. It is a faith issue. Giving is a matter of faith. It is not a matter of making budget for a church. It is a matter of faith. That's why no one at the bridge, none of the leaders know what people give. We don't. It's not my business. That's between you and the Lord. But I'll tell you, it is a matter of faith. As we get ready to build and and move forward in that direction... It's a matter of faith. It's does this body trust the Lord even when it comes to our finances and it gets sticky, it's money, Ugh, I don't want to talk about that. Trust the Lord with all your heart, Solomon says, and if you're not sure how to start, why not begin with money? Because it is one of the most difficult things for us to trust anybody with, even the Lord. Notice he doesn't just say if you have a little extra, toss it in the till. He says, honor the Lord from the first of all your produce. Solomon's prescription for you financially, if you want financial security in your life, if you want financial blessing in your life, and this is not, I'm not talking name it, claim it, I'm not talking, you know, the the faith only movement here. 
I'm saying if you want to know that you are secure in the provision of the Lord, you start by giving Him the first of what comes in the door. Your first fruits. The first 10%. Say, I don't even look at that. That's God's before I do another bill. Before I write another check, that first 10 goes to Him. It's one of those principles that is easily rejected and it's easily rationalized away as we say, I know the Bible says this, but... And then fill in the blank. But it's Old Testament stuff. Really. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe, uh, you know, uh, you give your 10% of your mint, dill, and your cumin, and, and He says, but you neglect the weightier things of the law, justice, mercy... He says, you should have done the former and the latter. Both. And Paul, in talking about giving, says, man, the more liberal you are in your giving, the more God's going to bless you so that you can be even more liberal in your giving. Pastor Rick, you don't understand. In this economy, I can't afford to tithe. I would tell you, you can't afford not to. People would say, it doesn't make sense to me. Lean not on your own understanding. It's a tough one, gang. I know. Been there. Done that. Continue doing it. It's a tough one. Especially when it's tight. Man, a a few years ago I had a conversation with a very, very wealthy man. Very wealthy man. And he said, Pastor Rick, I make such a ridiculous amount of money, it doesn't make sense to tithe. He said, if I were to tithe off of what I had made, it, it would be off the charts. You know, and as a pastor, I'm sitting there going, "I'll go off the charts with you." <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you what I thought. I thought literally in, in my head, I, I went, "You really think that your measly 10% is too much for the Lord to handle? You really don't think God can take care of?" It? Yeah, but I make so much. Whatever, you know. On the other extreme, you got people who say, "Well, I, I'm, I'm making so little." Hey. God's flat tax. <laughs> if you want to look at it that way, you're not going to give any more or any less than anybody else. You make a hundred bucks in a week, give the Lord ten. How hard is that? He makes it so easy, even a bonehead like your pastor could figure this out. The next time, gang, you struggle with faith and finance, listen, the Lord believes you are worth all of His investments. And He's not asking you for 10% to make it hard for you. He's asking you for 10% to begin a walk of faith, even in the area of financial provision. Walk this out with me. Test me in this, He says. Verse 11 going on. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, either as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. And after quoting those two verses, the Hebrew writer continues on with this thought. He says in Hebrews 12.7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then, listen, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you think or say, do I have to be disciplined? The answer is, only if you want to be legitimately disciplined a son or a daughter of God. Verse 13, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. 
For her profit is better than the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire compares with her. Solomon, gang, who wrote these words, was the richest man to ever live. Ever. Bar none. There was so much gold in Solomon's realm that the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 10.27 that the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. That's how much gold there was. People said, ah, silver, throw it out in the street. It's not not a big deal. Because there was so much gold there. Solomon had unimaginable wealth, and yet this man wrote, wisdom is worth more. It's worth more. How much is it worth just to give that stuff up for the sake? What are you willing to give up to receive the wisdom that comes from above? We are so upside down in this world. It is not material things that bring blessing. When the waves crashed and the earthquake shook, I'll tell you what, in the aftermath of this, when you look at the Japanese people right now, they are not concerned about material things. They are concerned about surviving. They're just concerned about the next meal. These are the the lessons that we need to learn from what's going on in the world around us. When we get so hung up about material blessings, gang, it's the internal things of wisdom and understanding and love and relationship. Listen to Solomon's description in verse 16 going on. Long life is in her right hand. Whose right hand? Wisdom's. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. A tree of life? Yeah, eat of her and you will live forever. You eat, you feast on wisdom, and you're going to live eternally because wisdom is going to lead you straight to Jesus who is wisdom. And you'll live for Him. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. John put it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. You want to know how wise Jesus is? Look at nature. Look at creation. Wow. What a powerful picture of wisdom. He says in verse 20, By His knowledge the deeps were broken up, and the skies drip with dew. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so that they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. You could call that Bible bling. Okay? Wisdom is the bling of Scripture. And then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Great verse. The National Sleep Foundation tells us that one out of three Americans use sleep medication several times weekly. That amounts to some 800,000 pounds a month. Not per person, but, you know, for the whole country. According to Scripture, and let me just put this out to you, we've talked about the health of this, the health of these sound words of wisdom. You want a good night's sleep? How about instead of popping a sleeping pill... How about spending a half hour in the Word? Not because it makes you drowsy, but because it brings a kind of peace and a security. And as you're reading, you start to realize, i got nothing to worry about, 
and off you go sleeping like a baby. That's a promise of Scripture. See how practical this book is? If you will seek and ingest words of wisdom, oh, you're going to sleep great. Verse 25, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. Practical advice, gang. Wisdom states if you owe it, pay it immediately as soon as you have it. If you owe it to your friend, you know, your friend Visa or American Express or your buddy MasterCard. (laughs) Solomon would say, don't put off payment. Pay it as soon as you have it. If you use a credit card, pay the credit. Let me, let me give you a, a practical piece of financial advice if you have credit cards and use them. The second you charge it, you take that receipt and you write it in your checkbook as if the money is gone. You write it then. You don't use the card and say, ah, we'll take care of it you know, later. I don't want to think about it now. No, you think about it now. You write down what it was you spent and at the end of the month you add up everything you wrote down and you pay the bill and you never get behind That's what Solomon would say. Pay what you owe now. Whether it's a payment to get out of debt or a payment just for treating someone the right way. Do not devise harm against your neighbor, verse 29, while he lives securely beside you. So that's just smart. Don't be stupid to your neighbor because your life's going to be miserable. Verse 30, do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. Literally, this this phrase, he's intimate with the upright. The phrase is in the Hebrew, the Lord's private counsel is with the upright. Those who are righteous receive the private counsel of God. John the Baptist put it this way, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, He gives the Spirit without measure. And Jesus said in John 14.26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The private counsel of the Lord. The secret counsel that He brings. Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He'll testify about Me. Jesus says, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative. Whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Powerful words. He's intimate with the upright. You want the private counsel of God? Stay on the path of wisdom. Verse 33. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. You know, it hit me in studying this, what it all reads like. This reads like the Sermon on the Mount. It just comes off kind of that same thing. As Jesus begins that powerful sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you're listening and it's just filled with these great words of wisdom and you want to do what he's saying. As we're getting in the Proverbs, I'm hearing the same thing. I'm hearing kingdom principles. Kingdom principles that if we'll follow these, if we'll walk in the way of the wisdom, we will land in the kingdom. 
We will be about the business of the King. We will do kingdom things. These words, I remind you as we conclude, are the words of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Who, 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us, became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These words will, if you will allow them, bring you into the kingdom, developing kingdom thinking among us, at least among those who are in it to win it. Final thought here. These are words, and I had this whole thing, I changed it a little bit when I got home today, but as I looked at it last week and returned to it through the week, the whole picture for me was running a race. You know, as we began, Paul saying, don't you know that those who run a race run to win? You run to win. And so I had the, you know, all these little pictures of it going through and, and running a race, and then I was reading through it today, and after watching all of the, of the trauma that we've seen in the news over the last week, the one thought kept coming to mind. What if you can't run? But what if life is so hard? You know, you look... And I brought it up a lot tonight, but it's really on my heart. You look at the Japanese people and the looks on their faces. Life has stopped in Japan. What about those who can't run? You know, it's it's nice and easy to give these words in this light, happy, hey, keep these words and run the race of faith and (laughs) you'll win. And then we see tragedy hit. And then I began thinking, it's not just earthquakes and tsunamis and fears of nuclear meltdown. It's... It's how do you take these practical words when your own life has stopped? When you're facing tragedy. And so often in church, you get this the, the happy three-point message and go home and, and it's not getting in deep. And so I prayed about this on the plane. I said, God, what do I do with this? How do we take these words and apply them in these days? As the birth pangs get closer together, what do you do when running doesn't even seem possible? You walk. You walk. Notice how Isaiah the prophet put this. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not grow weary. And there are some days when all you can do is just walk. When you can't fly, you can't run, you walk. And you keep walking, as Paul says, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You walk. That's what this book is about. Father, we thank You for these words that keep us moving. We thank You for the wisdom on these pages that continue our journey. Even, Lord when we don't have the strength to fly or the energy to run. Father, would You keep us walking? Just keep us walking. In faith, in security by Your Spirit, in the counsel of Your Spirit, eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Keep us walking, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.